uh, in the sp- spring of 1980, uh, Mount St. Helens was uh, showing signs that uh, it was imminent that a, a volcanic eruption was going to take place. And the authorities were warning the citizens that lived nearby for almost two months. But there was one man by the name of Harry Truman, strangely, and, uh, and Harry wanted nothing to do with it. He, he didn't want to take those warnings seriously. He, he thought everything was being blown out of proportion. It was all exaggerated. He said, you know, my house, there's uh, the wooded trees, and then there's the lake, and then there's my house. So there's this great distance, although it was only a mile from uh, the mountain. And, uh, and in this, uh, Harry was in the news, and people were writing articles about him, and he kind of became a celebrity for his defiance. And then on May 18th, Mount St. Helens blew, burying Harry and his home under 150 feet of volcanic landslide debris. The warning was ignored at the cost of Harry's life. Why do we need warnings? Why do we need to hear warnings? We need warnings because we are sinful people. We are sinful human beings. And our hearts are always chasing after things that are not God. Even things that are good, we can so easily make into the main thing in our lives. How many of us can take career or family or marriage or children or achievement, or work, or independence, or a political cause, or financial security, or human approval, or romance, and make an idol out of these things. And so over and over again, we are fed these warnings from Scripture. Not with the intention of of crushing us, but as a way of redirecting our focus redirecting our attentions, reminding us of who we are and to whom we belong. And so in 1 Corinthians, Paul has been addressing uh, these issues that the Corinthians had written to Paul about. These are specific issues of which they have raised. And now remember, there seems to have been some confusion over what Paul says as it relates to Uh, what believers are free to do and what they are to abstain from. There's a lot of confusion within the church. What, What can we do and what can't we do, Paul? Because your letters seem to contradict each other. And so in chapters 8 and 9, Paul walks them through the importance of what it looks like to love your brothers and sisters in Christ who are struggling with what they feel free to do. He then shows the great importance of the proclamation of the gospel in his ministry and how he, Paul, is willing to forfeit his rights in order that some might be saved. And we dealt with the question of warnings and assurance briefly last week. Paul using the illustration of uh, training for a race or, or training for a fight that he not be disqualified. And now he uses an illustration from the Old Testament to push that point further. 
So what is it we can learn from the Israelites in the desert? Can we learn anything? These Old Testament sections are sometimes uh, hard passages to read uh, in our devotionals, aren't they? They either seem too far removed or they feel inapplicable to our lives or they just sound like a bunch of complaining dummies. And yet we're the dummies. Paul tells the Corinthians and us, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. And therefore be disqualified, not necessarily from entering the kingdom, though that is an issue and a warning here to those who do not have Christ, but disqualifying your witness to those around you Paul says he trains himself, he gives himself a black eye that he may not be disqualified from the race that he's running, from the witness that he's bearing to those around him in the communities that he ministers to. And so he writes to this church in Corinth, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. The Israelites were baptized into Moses, meaning they identified Moses as their leader, just like Christ is our head, Christ is the leader of the church, and, and the Israelites were witnessing miracle after miracle, amazing miracles and signs of God's glory and his protection over his people. The Corinthians, the Corinthians witnessed even greater miracles in the transforming of lives, and they witnessed God's protection. The Israelites ate manna from heaven that was given to them as a blessing. They drank from the water of the rock that quenched their desperate thirst in the desert. The Corinthians were partakers of the bread of life. Christ's body, which was broken for them, that they may have new life. The Corinthians were partakers in the living water, the cup of Christ's blood, which was poured out for them for the redemption of sins, giving them a clear standing before the Lord Almighty. And yet, what do the Israelites do? They constantly fought against Moses. They complain bitterly about the food they were given. They whinge about the lack of water that they have. Even though they were saved from slavery in Egypt, they were having to make bricks without straw. They were being whipped and beaten. But they come through the waters, witnessing God clearly saves them and loves them. But they doubt his goodness and they don't know his character. And because they lack faith in the God who had saved them, they conclude that God must have brought us out into the desert to die. And so they fail to enter into the promised land, and they do actually die in the desert, save for two. And on top of that, 
their witness was disqualified. All the surrounding nations that watched as the Israelites escaped the most powerful nation at that time in Egypt, only to get lost in a short journey from Egypt to Israel. Now the Corinthians have been saved body and soul. They've been called out to be God's people in a very dark land. The similarities are there, are they not? And they fight over leadership and they doubt Paul's apostleship and they treat the Lord's Supper as an opportunity to think only of self. And they are disqualifying themselves from witnessing to the Corinthian community. You know, what would their slogans be? Come and be a Christian. We fight with each other. We're stuck in sexual sin. We cannot agree on who our leader is. It's great. It's not a great tagline. Paul says, Corinthians, learn the lesson of the Israelites. Don't repeat their mistakes. Don't be a generation that dies in the desert. Don't be a generation that is disqualified from witnessing effectively. For these things were written down for you and your benefit. Then he writes, Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. These are the words that were used to describe the Israelites in Exodus chapter 32 when they made a golden calf idol. Why does Paul start with this example? I've tried to think this through, and I I think it's because at the heart of making a golden calf was a fear that God had abandoned them. They were afraid to trust and put their faith in God, even though he had done what he had just done in bringing them through the sea. Moses had gone up onto the mountain to bring down the law tablets. Was he going to come back? Uh, what if God had done all this to trick us? Uh, What if he intends to harm us from this? And I think we can do this to an extent as well, can't we? Does God really want what is best for me? Does God really want me to succeed? And what is his definition of success? It's easier to go with what we know and what we can control rather than to trust in a God that we cannot see. What does that do for our testimony to the outside world? What does it say about where we place our trust? And so what do the Israelites do? They make an idol that they can control. An idol where they had power in the relationship. Just like all the surrounding nations, just like all the people groups around them, creating an idol that they can control, that they can use, that they can abuse. And so they don't enter the promised land, and God excludes them. They disqualify themselves from receiving the blessing that was intended for them. For the holy and just God cannot be made to look foolish. (laughs) Why would he bless a generation that curses him? Even though they were the people of God. 
even though they were baptized into Moses, even though they ate the spiritual bread and drank from the rock, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. May we not presume on God's grace. Then Paul warns about sexual immorality. We've heard Paul at length on this in earlier chapters in 1 Corinthians. But here, uh, Paul supports with evidence from the Old Testament. Numbers chapter 25. The Israelites begin to intermarry with outside groups, with followers of other religions. And here's what Numbers 25 says. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with daughters of Moab. These invited the people to sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. And so Israel yoked himself to Baal Peor, and the anger of the Lord kindled against Israel. God's design for his people was for them to be separate and other and holy like him. Holy not meaning perfect, but separate, different, apart. And in that... They were not to marry people outside of the Israelite community, knowing that they would eventually begin to worship the gods of their spouses, just like Solomon would do later in history. And so God judges his own people, even though they are the children of God, even though They were baptized into Moses, even though they ate the spiritual bread and drank from the rock. Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. How many pastors do we have to hear about in the news or through Christian media who have fallen into this sexual sin category? And if that's the case for leadership, it makes me wonder what the numbers look like within the pews. I'm sure Dad wouldn't mind me using this illustration. He's used it before, but years ago he was uh, looking to hire a man and uh, the man sort of was doing the interview process and everything was looking great. And then he noticed we have um, a rule book, sort of apostle staff uh, rule book. And one of the things talks about um, a man cannot ride in a car with a, a woman who's not his wife, just the one and one. If there's three, it's fine, but if it's just one and one, we, it's not allowed. And you can't have the door shut, and you can't have meetings with the door shut between two people of opposite sex that are not married. And this man got all upset and said, what is this? Do you not trust me? And the response was, no, we don't trust ourselves. We have to be on guard. Why risk even the appearance of evil? Then Paul warns against putting Christ to the test and grumbling. In Numbers chapter 21, the Israelites were impatient with God. They began to grumble and complain about the very spiritual food that Paul has referenced here. The manna that fell from heaven that was divinely provided because apart from it, there would have been no food. They complain about it. And God sends serpents into the camp, even though they were the people of God, even though they were baptized into Moses, even though they ate the spiritual bread and drank from the rock. 
Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. I read about a tour guide who was uh, sharing some of his experiences as a tour guide. He's from Ireland, and he used to look after bringing tours through Blarney Castle. And he said that um, at, at one point there was this group that was complaining about everything, the weather, the food, the accommodations, the prices. They just complained about everything. And uh, finally, the group arrived at the, at the castle itself, and, and there's this, at Blarney Castle, there's this big stone called uh, Blarney Stone or Blarney Rock. If you're Irish, you can correct me. And um, when they arrived, when the tour group arrived, they had, they had roped off this section. And the main complainer of the group said, I came all the way to kiss this stone, because there's apparently some fortune that comes from this. I came all the way to kiss this stone, and I can't even do that. Ugh, of course, you know, everything's terrible. And the tour guide said, you know, if you kiss someone who has kissed the stone, it's, uh, legend has it that it's equivalent, it's the same thing. And the complaining person said, well, and I'm assuming that you've kissed the stone. And the tour guide said, I've done much better than that, I've sat on it. I was judging whether that was too crude or... <laughs> Sometimes humor is helpful when we're trying to make a very real point. Consider the testimony you bear if you constantly grumble and complain. Do you know people like this? I know people like this. People like this is like people like me. And this has been very convicting and challenging for me as I've looked at this. Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. Verses 11 and 12. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. And so the questions that I would be asking are, okay, thank you, Paul. How do I avoid this? How do I not fall like Israel did? What does it look like? What is the answer? Give me the answer. I know that the answer cannot be to stand in your own strength and weather the storm or to be a better person because that runs contrary to what Scripture says. So what is the answer? Listen, the warning is not designed to instill terror or to paralyze us. Paul does not cast doubt upon our spiritual status as believers, if that is what we are. These warnings are not a threat to assurance like we said last week. Because those who heed the warnings grow in assurance. What was the way of relief and salvation for the Israelites who grumbled and tested Christ? From Numbers chapter 21, 
And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. In John chapter 3, Jesus and Nicodemus are talking about the kingdom of God. And what gains a, 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 what gains a person entry into that kingdom? Nicodemus, being a Pharisee and a proper Jew, thinks it's his religiosity. He thinks it's his family lineage. It's his supposed keeping of the law. Being a good Jew. And Jesus tells Nicodemus, unless you are born again, you have no part in the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus says... How can these things be? How can a person be born again? He doesn't understand. Jesus then says, the only way to understand it is to listen to the one, the only one who has come from heaven to earth. And then he cites this passage in Numbers 21. And he says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. You want to know how to gain entry into the kingdom of God? You you want to know how to not be like Israel in the desert? It's to keep your eyes on the one who was scorned and lifted high so that you and I could be set free. So that you and I could be born again looking to Christ, lifted up, receiving the judgment on our behalf. That's our means of escape. And verse 13 confirms the promise and the warnings work together to strengthen the believer as they ran and as we run the race to the end. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with temptation he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Paul's warning us against presumption. But then he assures us of God's faithfulness. Again, the tension between warnings and assurance. But the warnings serve as a means of assurance and preservation. My prayer is that there would be no person who hears these warnings and thinks nothing of them. That there would not be a person in this room who thinks these are silly and outdated or thinks that they are pointless. No, they rouse us to remember the gospel, to remember the good news, and to fall at the mercy and the grace of the God who loves us, who saved us. The temptations we face are not unique to us. They're not unique to the Corinthians. They're not unique to the Israelites. It's an experience of all people everywhere. And even in the face of the most intense temptations. God remains faithful. He does not abandon his own in the midst 
of their temptation to sin, God's grace is such that he gives believers resolve to resist the temptation and that they are able to withstand. So it can be seen in verse 13 that the way of escape, that the way out is through faith. You're putting your faith in Christ, and it is twofold. We look to Christ, the Son of Man, lifted high for salvation, as Jesus showed Nicodemus. We pray, we rejoice, we give thanks for all circumstances. We learn to sin less and less through the process of sanctification. Not saying that we can attain sinless perfection, because some people take these verses in verse 13 and say, if he provides a way out, then we can always find a way out. Therefore, we can attain this sinless perfection. It is not saying that. Because we know in in, uh, 1 John 1, if we say we are without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But the second point is that when we do fall, and we will, we still have the blood of Jesus and the cross. That's why when we take the Lord's Supper, and I know someone's going to complain to me that we don't do it here, that's out of my control. But when we take the Lord's Supper, we remember and proclaim and partake in the reality of the death of Jesus, which covers our sins. We remember the Son of Man lifted high, just as that serpent was in the day of Moses. And we remember our salvation comes from Him alone. And we rejoice that God will remain faithful in bringing His saints to the end. What a testimony to those outside the church. We're not perfect. And yet we do not strive in our own strength. But we fall into the arms of a loving God. As the girl showed in the testimony video. We have a father that loves us. For God so loved the world. And we have proof because he gave his only son How could we not heed the warning? Because we have such a blessed assurance. Let's pray. Father, these things were written for us. Not so that we can scoff at them. Not so that we can feel crushed under unbearable pain and cannot move, but that we can remember the rock that was always with them in the Old Testament. The rock that is still with us today. That no matter our situation... No matter the temptation, no matter the testing, we can come to Him, our Savior, our Lord, our Redeemer, our friend. And we can rest safe in knowing that He will see, He will bring that good work to completion to the end.
So let us not presume on God's grace, but let us rejoice in what we have received. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.